to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast, season three. My name is Yvonne Hartley from the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign. This month's updates are unfortunately very short. As it stands, we are still waiting for a substantive response from the Criminal Cases Review Commission regarding the submissions made on the 10th of March 2021. We hope to be able to bring you some more information on this next month. Regarding the campaign, we are holding our annual general meeting next week on the 16th of February. And from that, decisions will be made regarding what we plan to do in the coming year. A new issue has arisen in the last week, and this is regarding the non-disclosure of evidence that is held in the National Archive. We originally knew that 230 closed files existed, not to be opened until 2054, and therefore a 70-year embargo. Despite freedom of information requests on this, we have been unable to establish what these files actually are, although we do know they're related to the Ministry of Justice, the Home Office and the Director of Public Prosecutions. However, at the end of last week we discovered further files were being held. One file in particular that is to remain closed until 2070, but which was only put into place last year. And so therefore this is an 86-year embargo. There are further files held on a 94-year embargo and cannot be opened until 2078. We are conducting further investigations to try to establish what these files could be and why there is such a lengthy time before these files will be made open and available. And so to this month's podcast. And this month we feature another police officer involved in the case, D.C. Barlow. D.C. Barlow was instrumental in areas of the case, particularly regarding the windows at White House Farm. Also in his relationship with the wider family, who ultimately became the beneficiaries, and in relation to the information that he provided to them on a continual basis. Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast, Season 3. In this episode, we discuss the actions and interference in the case of yet another police officer, Michael John Barlow. Barlow joined the police force in 1969 and was with the police for a total of 32 years until suffering a stroke in 2001, which forced him into retirement on medical grounds. During his time with Essex Police, Barlow achieved the position of Detective Constable and, at the time of the tragedies, was based at Witham Police Station. Following the shootings at the farm, Barlow became one of the go-to police officers for the wider family, predominantly Jeremy's uncle, Robert Bowflower. Not only did he undertake experiments at the behest of the relatives, but revealed to them confidential case information and forensic results pre-trial. The evidence contained in this episode has been discovered in disclosed witness statements from police and relatives, and also from police reports, logs and comments made during the 2002 appeal by the judges. Barlow states that the first time he attended the farm was two weeks after the incident on the 22nd of August, and that his purpose for going was to examine the kitchen window. 
However, it is known that not only did he conduct experiments on the kitchen window, but he also examined the downstairs shower room window, the one that was later determined to be Jeremy's point of entry to the house. Barlow's witness statement of the 21st of November 1985 was available to the defence pre-trial and it only referred to his inspection of the kitchen window. He described his actions as About 10am on Thursday the 22nd of August 1985 I was on duty when I went to White House Farm, Pages Lane, Tolshunt, Darcy. There I made an examination of the kitchen window. This was true as far as it goes, as he did examine the kitchen window on the 22nd of August, but he failed to mention that he had actually examined all the windows at White House Farm for any signs of entry that day. He failed to find any evidence of tampering and no indication whatsoever that any damage had been caused to any of the painted window frames or window catches. Many years after the conviction, during a re-examination of the window's evidence, Jeremy's defence team discovered that Barlow had withheld this important information from the defence pre-trial and from the trial jury. This deception on Barlow's part was, however, realised in time to be raised at the 2002 appeal hearing, which led Lord Chief Justice Kay to comment that, in the case of DC Barlow, we conclude that he should have included the fact that he examined all the windows on the 22nd of August. Kay also criticised Barlow for omitting to specify that he noted nothing of significance in relation to the downstairs bathroom window and had found no evidence whatsoever of entry or exit marks on any of the windows, including the downstairs bathroom one. The examinations which had been conducted by Barlow at the time were not simply external ones but he undertook additional tests from inside the house, opening and closing the windows and testing the catches to determine how the windows opened and closed securely. However, we recently came to realise that Barlow failed to set out in any of his evidence, pre or post trial, how he actually gained entry into the house to conduct his experiments. Although by the 22nd of August 1985, Jeremy was now in possession of keys to the farmhouse, he certainly didn't allow DC Barlow access to the house to examine the windows, nor was he asked at any time. And so, who was it that allowed Barlow into the house on the 22nd of August? As no one admits to doing this in any evidence, this remains a mystery. Although it would not be unreasonable to suggest that Anne Eaton who was also in possession of the keys and was at the farmhouse on what appears to be a daily basis, may have been the person who allowed access for the experiments. This is further supported by the fact that, in amongst the thousands of documents disclosed in 2011, we discovered some handwritten notes made by Barlow, which are dated the 10th of November 1986, therefore written after the trial. In these notes, he set out that on the 20th of August, Robert Bowflower and Anne Eaton directed his attention to the windows as having some connection with the incident. Specifically, they told him about the window, which they assumed was a point of entry located behind the bushes by the goose pound facing the tennis court. This was the downstairs bathroom window, the one the police eventually decided must have been Jeremy's entry point to the house. 
Therefore, the evidence appears to confirm that these unofficial and unauthorised examinations of the windows by Barlow only came about as a result of the discussions he had had with the Eatons and the Bowflowers, and their insistence that Jeremy must have used the windows to enter and exit the farmhouse. Examination of the material disclosed for the first time in 2011 has also revealed that in 2002, Barlow admitted for the first time that not only did he conduct these previously unrecorded examination of the windows, but that these actions were not conducted as part of the official police investigation, nor had they been authorised by any senior officer. In his statement of the 24th of July 2002, Barlow stated, The officer who was in charge of the investigation at that stage, DCI Jones, had been unaware of my going to the farm and conducting the tests. When he found out, he gave me a proper dressing down. He was angry that issues were still being investigated. He wanted no more of it. A further key issue regarding the kitchen window had occurred during Barlow's evidence at trial, although it was only recently realised on an examination of the evidence presented at the trial. Although the transcript of Barlow's trial evidence has never been released, the notes made by the prosecution junior at the trial, Andrew Monday, were amongst the disclosed material Jeremy and the team received in 2011. In these notes, it is set out that whilst discussing the window experiments he conducted, Barlow revealed that a bottom catch of the kitchen window, which ran along the window sill, could not be fastened to its retaining peg from the outside of the house. Numerous documents discuss the fact that when he examined the windows at 9.15am on the 7th of August, the senior investigating officer at the time, DCI Taft-Jones, recorded that all the windows, with the exception of the one in the main bedroom, were closed and secure and on their latches. Ainsley also documented that the windows were closed and secure with the catches in place. This is also supported by the crime scene photographs taken by Bird from 10am. Although there is no specific image which clearly shows the bottom catch was closed properly, scrutiny of the disclosed images does show that this catch can only have been secured on its peg as it is, flat and horizontal to the windowsill, which was not the position it would have been in if it was not securely closed. Even though Barlow raised the issue that this catch could not be secured from the outside, the Crown moved quickly on, and it seems that Rivlin, for the defence, failed to realise the significance of this, and asked nothing about it. This evidence was key because if this catch was on its peg, as it appears to have been, and if it could not be secured from the outside, then it shows that no one left the house, and therefore the perpetrator remained inside. That person could only be Sheila. Barlow was also involved, to a degree, with Julie Mugford, taking her witness statement dated 8th of September 1985. This followed her confessions regarding her involvement in drug cultivation and consumption, as well as her part in the burglary which took place with Jeremy at Osea Road caravan site in March 85. Barlow recalled his actions. She then went on, however, to implicate herself in a burglary committed with Bamba at the Osea Road caravan site. What I then had was her potential criminal activity being taken on to a higher and more serious level, 
I had to be careful now. I took the decision at this stage of the interview to caution her. It was the right thing to do and was normal practice. He continued, Further into the statement, she admitted involvement in some check frauds. She still was, of course, under caution. By the time of the 2002 Stoken Church inquiry, Barlow was asked about immunity from prosecution for Mugford being put in place pre-trial, to which he responded in the following way. It has been suggested that police took action to ensure Miss Mugford was not prosecuted in relation to the check frauds or the other offences she admitted to, thus ensuring she could appear as a witness for the prosecution with an unblemished character. I can say that I was never involved in any form of collusion with the Midland Bank or the CPS, DPP's office, to ensure that no further action would have been taken against her. I know of no one else who was involved in such a scam, if indeed it ever occurred. Further, in 2002, Annabel Darlow, barrister for the Crown at the time, asked the prosecution solicitor at the trial, Andrew Monday, if he had any knowledge of an immunity deal being in place pre-trial. Monday stated, I do not recall advising as to the appropriate course that should have been taken and rather think that I did not. If I did advise the granting of immunity, it would have been the only occasion in my career in which I have so advised. Monday elaborated on this, in that had immunity been given to Mugford for her crimes, and had it been known then, it would have allowed this to be referred to at the trial. He explained, If it was not raised, it would not have surprised me, because, as I recall, the revelation of the commission of offences came in the course extensive confess-all-type interviews or statements carried out in order to air any skeletons that may have been in any cupboards. In those circumstances, there would not have been a great deal of mileage in you are only saying these things against Mr Bamber because you have been granted immunity sort of cross-examination. But not all of Mugford's crimes were revealed at the trial, including multiple drug offences including smuggling drugs, and the now-known fact that she was involved in at least 13 checkbook fraud offences, not just one, as the jury were led to believe. Had this been known, the defence could have used the argument of you are only saying these things against Mr Bamber because you've been granted immunity. Furthermore, Mugford did receive immunity from prosecution, which was approved by the DPP, this raises the question of why it appears it was hidden. Surely the Crown should have had knowledge about this by the time of the appeal, as should the defence, or was it, as Barlow stated, a scam? A further key issue involving Barlow was that almost from the outset during the police investigations, Barlow was contacted continually by the Bowflowers and Eatons, who bombarded him with their opinions and suspicions about Jeremy, advising him and others how they believe the case should be conducted and what areas the police should be investigating. Barlow, in response, appears to have had absolutely no issue in complying with their requests, frequently disclosing confidential information in relation to various aspects of the police investigation to them. 
This included, but was not limited to, him disclosing the results of forensic tests, information regarding searches being conducted by Essex Police, and the drug squad, uh, forensic evidence, and key information regarding the timings of the telephone calls. So how do we know this to be the case? Barlow's willingness to assist the relatives is set out throughout three contemporaneous diaries written by Robert Bowflower. In them, he states, for example, that Barlow also told him that all the detectives in this office are convinced that Jeremy is guilty of this crime. This was not true. Only a small minority of police had this opinion, so it raises the question of why Robert Bowflower was told this and further why Barlow felt compelled to circulate such a lie to the wider family members. There is conflicting evidence regarding the discovery of June Bamber's bicycle at Jeremy's cottage and when this was seen for the first time and seized for forensic examination. In her witness statement dated the 16th of September 85, Anne Eaton stated that on the morning of the 22nd of August, she visited Jeremy's cottage. Getting no reply, she went round to the back of the house and said that she saw June's cycle, which she set out, had mud on the tyres and in the rims. She expanded that, I then returned to my house and I telephoned Witham Police Station and told Detective Constable Barlow that I had seen a pedal cycle outside the back door of Jeremy's cottage. He confirmed that he had seen it the previous day after visiting Jeremy's cottage at Head Street, Goldhanger. However, in handwritten notes made by Barlow, he admitted that on the same day, he secretly examined the windows at the farm. He had also been on the lookout for June's bicycle. He wrote that there was no trace of it at the farm. But if he had already seen it the previous day at the cottage, why on earth would he look for the same bike at the farm? Perhaps this was to further hide the fact that he had been at the farm at the behest of the relatives when he conducted his unauthorised window experiments. Robert Bowflower gave evidence in his witness statement of the 10th of September 85 that he had been examining the local farm tracks and fields to see if he could see any bicycle tracks and or footprints and admitted he was looking for evidence to see whether Jeremy had used this track. I spent part of the next three days covering all the track and footpaths to see if I could find any evidence, also to find the shortest and easiest way without being seen. I found that there was three routes he could have used without being seen. One route was a direct route across the fields, which was about three miles in distance. Another route also across fields, but using footpaths and tracks, which would be three miles long, and a further route was four miles along the sea wall. On the same day of the statement, Essex police set out in their event log scenes of crime to obtain Mrs Bamber's cycle. But this is where it all becomes very strange again, because the bicycle had already been seized from Jeremy's home by DC Ashenden on the 8th of September, following Jeremy's initial arrest. Forensic tests were later conducted on the bicycle and much to the dismay of the relatives, it was found to have no traces of blood or contaminants on it to link it with the scene, the crime or the alleged routes from White House Farm to Jeremy's cottage. 
But there should never have been any sinister implications of the reason why this cycle was at Jeremy's house. And we know that it was there throughout the investigations until the time it was seized. So why was the cycle at Jeremy's house, you may ask? It certainly was not because it had been used as a getaway vehicle, but simply that he had borrowed it from his mum for Julie to get to and from work when she stayed over at Jeremy's cottage. This fact was confirmed by Mugford in a statement as she set out how she would cycle from Jeremy's house to Tolshunt Darcy, leaving the bike at the Red Lion pub, where she then caught the bus to Colchester. Also included in her evidence was the fact she asked Jeremy if she could keep June's bicycle after the shootings, as set out in her statement dated 10th of September, in which she said, He asked me if I wanted anything from the house, and I said I would like the bicycle for travelling to college. However, this was edited out of the served copy of her statement, and therefore the defence and the jury were not told of this fact, allowing the presence of the bicycle at Jeremy's cottage to then be seen as something sinister and connected to the tragedies. Essex Police also disclosed an enormous volume of case information to the Bowflowers and Eaton's during the course of the ongoing investigation. Much of this was specified as being of a confidential nature, and yet it appeared Essex police were more than happy to share this. Barlow was the main culprit, uh, disclosing a vast amount of data, especially to Robert Bowflower, who recorded some of this disclosure in his contemporaneous diaries. This information included, but is not limited to, Tuesday the 20th, visit Bright and Witham Police Station, notified in confidence, re-drug squad incident in JB's house, as a source of supply. Tuesday the 20th, met Barlow, Jones, on leave, got the impression that the drug squad had come out to investigate Jeremy's house as a source of supply of drugs on Friday last, the day of the funeral. Unaware that he was involved in this murder case, hence their appearance at the funeral, this was all in confidence. In a different version of his diaries, Bowflower revealed even more material of a confidential nature which Barlow had disclosed to him. As set out by Barlow, this was as follows. Told the following in confidence. Bowflower's emphasis. 1. There is no evidence of drug-induced psychosis. 2. The times of the telephone calls do not tally with Jeremy's statement. Jeremy said he phoned police before phoning Julie. Julie said that she looked at her watch when the phone woke her. It was 3.15am. Jeremy entered his conversation. Whatever happens, remember, I will always love you. She advised him to go back to sleep. Police records showed Jeremy's call to Chelmsford to be at least half an hour later than 3.15am. Jeremy had said they could not get a reply from Witham. Local people know that Witham is closed from 2 to 6am, but it so happened that there was an officer in the office by the phone from 3 to 4am on that night, and Chelmsford contacted him by phone at five minutes to four, in brackets, approximately, I didn't take notes at the time. Freddie had said that Sheila had lost all muscle coordination, and if she wanted to pick up a glass to drink from it, the movements were erratic and needed both hands in order to get one hand round the tumbler. If she wanted to put out her left arm, 
the right arm moved out to balance it involuntarily. Why Barlow felt compelled to share this information is not known, but it certainly enabled Bowflower and the family to use this information to build upon their scenarios to implicate Jeremy. How is it lawful that witness evidence was disclosed to Bowflower, who went on to be a key prosecution witness at trial? By reviewing the case material, it has become apparent that DS Stan Jones, another of the key officers to have a, a close ongoing relationship with both the relatives and Mugford and Barlow, were in some degree of competition with each other as to whom the relatives would turn to at each stage. At one stage, Jones was upset that the beneficiaries had so much confidence in the assistance they were getting from Barlow and in an attempt to undermine his fellow officer. Jones told Eaton that Barlow was a liar. This fact was revealed in the notes made by Eaton for her statements to the City of London Police in 1991, in which she wrote, RWB, Robert Bowflower, got on very well with Barlow and Stan Jones. We were told, he told, pork pies. I think that was Stan's simple words he used. Was Jones jealous of the fact that the relatives did not solely rely on him for evidence? Did Jones, in fact, have any knowledge of the confidential nature of information Barlow was sharing with them, or indeed that he was conducting unauthorised and unsupervised actions and experiments, particularly with the windows at the farm. What exactly did Jones mean when he accused Barlow of being a liar? Why did he not report his colleague to senior officers? These are questions that it is doubtful we will ever obtain the answers for. However, the evidence we now have unearthed, in particular regarding his relationship with the wider family, the information he illicitly disclosed to them, and more importantly, the evidence regarding the windows, has become part of the fresh evidence which is now under consideration on this issue by the Criminal Cases Review Commission. A large corpus of fresh evidence regarding the window issues, including the evidence we have realised, concerning Barlow and his findings, has been submitted to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. We believe that this evidence now proves without question that the windows were not used as entry and exit means into the farmhouse at the time of the shootings, and that the evidence that suggested that they were was at best manipulated and at worst fabricated. We believe this deception regarding the windows in and of itself merits a referral to the Court of Appeal. You can join our monthly Facebook meetings, which have a first look at case material, presentations and guest speakers at our official Facebook, Jeremy Bamber Justice Group. Music